The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Okay, welcome. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Dennis Mangers, former legislator, a uh, longtime uh, cable industry, television industry lobbyist. And now we're going to chat about politics and cable and the Fund for Young Performing Artists, which I understand you're involved with. Indeed. Um, first of all, one thing I wanted to ask is uh, vis a vis this recent election. The changes in Orange County that you've seen, you're pro, and you've seen Orange County from the inside. Now you've been outside of it for a while, uh, and out went Democratic. It's got a Democratic congressional legislation, I think entirely, if not almost entirely. Um, so what happened in Orange County that changed since the time you were in it and what we're seeing now? Golly, could they have come to their senses? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm as, I'm as astounded as anyone, of course, to see such a turnover and so quickly. Yeah. Uh, because until the night before the election, of course, most of those people were not only Republican representatives at the state and national level, uh, but they were pretty much conservative, more to the to the extreme right. Uh, and many had, uh, over the last two years, aligned themselves pretty solidly with President Trump. Mm-hmm. So to see such a dramatic uh, change overnight uh, on election night, well, actually, because of the way Orange County votes, finding out the next day, and now days later, the magnitude of the turnover is really astounding. Is this a Trump effect? Is this part of the Trump effect in reverse? Then I, I, I feel pretty solid uh, on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that uh, it's hard. It's hard in in such a short time span to attribute it to anything else. Uh-huh. Really, but I think um, Orange County, you know, for the most part, is a pretty well educated constituency, and probably better informed than perhaps a, a number mm-hmm. of others in the state. Uh, and I think uh, are appalled at the um, lack of civility, the tenor of the conversations that are going on this last uh, two years. It's distinctly different than when George Bush, for instance, was president, uh-huh. while Republican and conservative and stumbled and, you know, and uh, often became a parody. Uh, this was really different. Mm-hmm. The, the, even the Republican moderates, and of which there are many there, I think were recoiling. The, uh, I was just reading this morning that uh, Orange County had not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1936 with mm-hmm. Roosevelt. 2016, they voted for Hillary. There was a quick, like you're saying, a fast, quick, there's a, a, an abrupt turnaround there. Is it the campaign? It was the Trump campaign that did that? Were there other things going on? We went to the pollsters today. They were talking registration's a big deal. Uh, engagement, especially among younger voters, is a big deal. It seems like mail-in voting is a big deal that uh, marginally helps Democrats by 1% or 2%, at least in statewide races. I mean, are all these things going on, or is there something special about Orange County, you think, that made this such a dramatic uh, flip? No, I don't think. I think everything you've cited are all legitimate issues. I leave that mostly to political scientists who do the analytics Mm -hmm. in the wake of these kinds of phenomena. Uh, and I'll be as intrigued as anyone to follow the blogs and follow that kind of stuff. Talk to my friend Paul Mitchell, et cetera, about these things. But for the most part, I think everything you cited. In response to Trump and the that whole business, 
Um, millennials were engaged for the first time. I understand that Latinos, and there are many of them in Orange County, voted in unprecedented numbers. Uh, the overall vote turnout and number of registrations went up dramatically. And I think that's because people are frightened mm-hmm. about the the, uh, the current climate. Do you think it's a one-off? I mean, if uh, Trump isn't running in 2020 or if, say, something happens legally to him and another candidate, say Pence, is running, does Orange County revert to the conventional Republican model? You think Trump seems to be so weird, so un, uh, he's, he's an outlier, he's strange, you can't really categorize him. If there's no Trump in 2020, does Orange County re- return to the way it used to vote for generations, for years? Well, I don't know about a complete return, but I think the basic answer to your question is yes. I think mm-hmm. it will revert to some extent. Mm-hmm. And the best analog I can think of is my own election, mm-hmm. where I was swept in as a Democrat to an assembly seat in the wake of the Watergate. Mm-hmm. And both Republican and Democrat disaffection with what appeared to be a corruption uh-huh, that needed okay. to be corrected. Uh, and then I was swept right out, as 17 others were, not just because... Uh-huh. Carter conceded early, but also because uh, it is basically a Republican bastion and basically has a traditional Republican strain around fiscal restraint, um, strong military, protection of law enforcement, the usual. There was kind of a narrow window there. I'm just thinking the cavemen came in 78 and then and they went in as a whole on fiscal reform issues defined Mm -hmm. as defined by Republicans. They Mm -hmm. went in. I'm thinking of Ross Johnson and I think. Pat Nolan and Pat others. Nolan. Mm-hmm. But then you came in, and two years later, there's uh, a wave that brought you in. That's right. And then, and that's why I think you're on the right track when you say, will they revert? Mm-hmm. To some extent, they certainly will. If Republicans come up with someone, you know, slightly to the right, conservative of the, of the center, yeah. uh, I think the, most of the Republicans will flock back. And many Democrats who were highly motivated this time may be less so. Uh-huh. Okay. Hard to tell. And, you know. So what was your district like back when you were elected? I mean, what can you describe it to give us some context compared to what it's like today? I had, I had uh, moved out there as a young school teacher from Long Beach, and uh, I'd had a small inheritance, so we were able to buy a home, and Huntington Beach was booming at the time. So we went out, looked at a little house, bought it, our first uh, house. I became a school principal ultimately in Fountain Valley, and I was asked to run for the school board. Well, that was my first taste of how conservative Orange County was. Because to my shock, and I think the shock of others, I got elected over 19 other candidates to take a seat on the Huntington Beach Union High School board. Next thing I know, they elect me chair, and I am facing um, uh, assaults by book burners and what was then called the John Birch Society, coming, taking very conservative tones about, you know, uh, evildoers like Steinbeck, and Hemingway, and wanting these books burned, etc. And so that was my first glimpse. And uh, I was concerned enough about public education uh, being assaulted in various ways uh, by the right that I decided to run against the incumbent assemblyman, Robert Burke, who had been a fixture there by then for eight years. And I was highly encouraged by, oh, League of Women Voters and... Uh, uh, academics and others that were tired of this conservative rant. So I ran um, in 74 and was n- narrowly defeated. Uh, and the Democratic Party, seeing the the uh, statistics there, the data, thought, why help this kid? 
you know, he's not doesn't have a chance against a Republican incumbent in that district. So I got no help. I had to do it all grassroots. But I came so close that they sensed there was something different about that particular corner, that northwest corner of Orange County. Maybe the surfing capital, maybe this is the university nearby, whatever. And so the speaker called one day and said, I know you're, you've just lost, and this is going to sound strange, but if you'll go out and register, I forget, the number of voters, and if you'll raise this certain amount of money and, uh, and, and are willing to run again, we'll back you this time. So I called my people together, the first one being my wife, of course, who was already pretty sour on politics by then. And um, we pulled it together, did exactly what he suggested. Next thing I know, I was getting help and being taken more seriously. And uh, so I ran, and this time, of course, in 1976, uh, I won, and he was defeated. And three others went down. I remember my colleagues, Ron Cordova of Newport Beach, Mm -hmm. uh, actually... That was the most Republican district, I think, in America. Wow. And a Democrat, a Sephardic Jew from Newport Beach, won that one. And Bruce Young in the Norwalk, La Mirada, oh, yeah. Artesia area, he won. And we three became roommates when we got up here. Democrats have to stick together. Well, we thought we did, you know. <laughs> uh, none of us had much money and all had wives and kids. and So, uh, yeah, we so we, we won with support. But it, it was very conservative place. You mentioned uh, 1980. Uh, and the presidential race in 1980, Jimmy Carter conceded before the polls closed in California. You think that had an effect on, on your race and the votes? I know it was close when the 1980 race was close. Do you think that played a role in it? Well, it's not just what I think. It is a fact mm-hmm. now. Uh, C- Congressman Corman of the Valley and 17 others along the West Coast all went down with me that night. And part of it was clearly the cut in the Democratic turnout. I had about 500 uh, volunteers at Fountain Valley High School, all armed with their flashlights and their lists to go out and and go to every house that had said they'd vote for me. And it was very clear around um, 7, 7 o'clock maybe, a little earlier, many of them were coming back in tears saying they don't think you're in trouble. You're endorsed by every paper and ahead in the polls. uh, And the presidential race is over. We can't pry them out of their houses. So I sensed then we were in trouble. And as the votes came in, finally around 1 o'clock in the morning, the precincts we were counting on to be more heavily Democratic hadn't voted. And the numbers just So they just stayed home. Yes, they just stayed home. So by about 1.32 in the morning, I just told my my people, let's go home, get some rest. But it looks like we're done here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was the first race I covered for the AP. And Uh the political writers in Sacramento would go to Los Angeles to cover cover the race, cover Senate and President and the other races. And part of our tradition was to eat at a restaurant in Olvera Street. And we'd eat from 5 to 6, 5 to 6.30, 5 to 7, go back to the office, which was downtown. Then it was on South Hill Street. Yeah. And get ready for the polls to close, do some lay-down copy, and then get ready. We get back to the office. Actually, before we got to the office, we're at the restaurant, and he's conceded. And it took the air out of all the reporters. There must have been eight or nine of us there. Took the air out of the room. I mean, we thought, why are we, it's, you know, it, it seems like so anticlimactic. And then the story became, what was the impact of that on races like yours? Well, you may recall the then Secretary of State was Marge Fong Yu. Yeah. And she and I had become quite friendly. And the next morning, she was so appalled at what had occurred. She called personally, of course. And, and then she went on um, 
nationwide television and said that she was going to sponsor a movement to make it illegal for a president to concede. Later, it turned out, I think that had constitutional implications. I can't Mm -hmm. remember the details, but it didn't fly. I was particularly disappointed, though, not just that Carter conceded early, Mm -hmm. um, but I had developed kind of a, um, a new idea about a district could be won. I looked at a map of precincts, and I didn't see precincts because I'm a school teacher. I saw an elementary school in every quarter section of those five cities that made up that district. And I said to my people, we're going to ignore precincts. I know schools, and I know middle-class parents and how aspirational they are about kids. And this is the coast. Our incumbent is a petroleum engineer that had something to do with those offshore drilling platforms. So we're going to take coastal environment and public education. We're going to write early childhood ed, everything that I know parents like me, young parents like me and my wife, care about. And we're going to develop a message that's totally the antithesis of what the incumbent stands for. So they brought out students and teachers and principals and labor and a lot of the natural constituencies. But many of them abandoned us at the end through complacency mm-hmm. of, hey, we got this. Who needs to go out and, and, and vote? And that, that really got to me as well, that the, the, the kind of romantic idealism of the approach I had taken was kind of shattered by the reality. Right now, three out of four assembly members, or they will be as of January when everybody's sworn in, three out of four are members are Democrats. Over two-thirds in the Senate, just barely over two-thirds in the Senate yes. are Democrats. Of course, the governor's Democrat. Lieutenant governor is a Democrat. All of them. All of them all the way down. I think... How about Board of Equalization? It used to be they always had a holdout or two. They still do. I think there's still two Republicans, probably Runner and Joel Anderson, maybe. Okay. But the other three, I think, are Democrats. So I guess <coughs> overwhelmingly it's a blue state, which is not news, but uh, what are, are you, you see fissures within the Democrats when you, you know, the old saw about, you know, be careful what you wish for. It's overwhelmingly Democrat. Do they split up more into moderate Democrats, business-friendly Democrats, left Democrats, and viral on the coast, Central Valley in the Senate. Do you see this? Is there a wedge there for the few Republicans left to dive into? Not much. I mean, the two things I see are, A, now that we have such a solid majority uh, that you've described well, uh, is don't screw it up, you know, by going to any excess. Uh, And the second thing uh, is that, yes, they will split along the lines that we'll see nationally uh, with a left of center uh, believing that if if you've been given a mandate of this magnitude, you need to go home to what are the basic fundamental principles of your party Mm -hmm. and that universal health care and universal early childhood, blah, 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 and for which there will be a price tag. You know, Republicans will push back, but so will the so-called what we call blue dog in Congress or the mods, or whatever been described to as more business-friendly types that will continue to be from those districts that are marginal, mm-hmm. and they will vote marginally. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't give much of a wedge for Republicans, but it certainly will point out, I think more dramatically, some of the typical fissures that will evolve even more as we move toward the 2020 elections. What happens in 2020, uh, I just, I'm wondering whether moving the primary up to March 2020, presidential, but also House elections. It's been tried in the past with indifferent results. The idea being California wants to be relevant. 
in the selection of a candidate. So does that happen? If we put it up to 2020, is that going to make any difference this time, do you think? I don't have a clue, you know, honestly. Um, I think it's an interesting notion to explore. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I personally have never been a part of that vanguard that thinks California has to somehow be inordinately influential in that regard, even though I know, I've heard all the arguments we're in a nation state, we're fifth largest economy and all that, and we're not taken as seriously as we ought. We're just a big ATM, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's of less importance to me personally. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's... Um, I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to watch. Aside from the politics, you are involved with the uh, Fund for Young Performing Artists, which seems like about as far away from politics and lobbying as you could get. So what is the Fund for Young Performing Artists, and what do you do with it? If you were involved in the arts, you would know that it's not apolitical, for one thing. <laughs> it's like every, the artist, you <laughs> every aspect of the human enterprise has its own internal mm -hmm. uh, politics. But I, of course, I, I've been a singer all my life and been involved in the arts my whole life. And now I'm a strategic advisor to Mayor Steinberg for arts and culture. And I'm developing on his behalf an infrastructure for arts and the community. Uh, one of the things I observed in all the years I've been active in the arts here in Sacramento uh, is that our uh, arts educational programs in the schools have declined since Prop 13 mm -hmm. and almost non-existent in the K-8 um, uh, sector. Uh, and many youngsters don't have the opportunity that I had in public school to experience chorus, chorus and band and visual art, etc. Uh, and I remembered uh, a few years ago a day when a, a teacher called my father and said, we think your son has promise as a singer and he could benefit from private lessons. And my father laughed and said, our, our priority right now is to feed him and his brothers. <laughs> we lived in Lawndale, California. We were pretty poor. And if it weren't for raising rabbits and chickens, there would have been not protein. So uh, I, I vowed that someday when circumstances got better, I would set up a fund. And I did at the Sacramento Region Community Foundation called the Dennis Mangers Fund for Young Performing Artists. Okay. And people contribute to it, and I contribute to it every year. And then we do a concert every year, as we just did at the Sophia downtown, and raise money for it. And then we give scholarships to youngsters who show promise from every walk of life, uh, all socioeconomic levels, and if their parents can't afford the tuition for, like, the B Street program, the Broadway series, the, the Sacramento Theater Company, yeah. then we pay. Yeah, that's and great. So that kids kids are not denied an opportunity to explore special training in the performing arts just because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of the kind of singers are, we're talking about rock. Um, well, it's not... It's, but, but guitars in sequent uniforms or operatic or... Virtually anything. anything. You know, okay. I was classically trained as a tenor. Uh, probably would have loved to have been a rock and roll singer. Mm -hmm. You know, move over Freddie Mercury. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> I think he has. <laughs> yeah, he did, didn't he? So um, if you could see these kids, you know, you'd understand why I'm so motivated to, yeah. to do this. And if anybody is uh, interested, there is a fund. Go online to the Sacramento Community Region Foundation. Mm -hmm. The Sacramento Region Community Foundation, okay. as you say, and uh, and they can contribute. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to a fellow singer here, um. because Tim Foster got back from a tour of Europe. That's a true story, tour of Europe. Uh, you guys went to Istanbul was the first one, and then uh, he's cool. blushing. You can't see this on radio, but <laughs> I'm not really blushing. But you know, <laughs> no. it's true. And he did got Italy back, and also Spain. Got back. I did get back two days before the election, so I was back in time to vote. <laughs> well, we use singing in my campaigns. 
Uh, oh, that's right. You were, yeah, we were we were uh, denied access to Seal Beach Leisure World, for instance. Uh, and one of the Democratic uh, people in there said, "Well, you know what they love is free entertainment, and we have an amphitheater. So if you come in and do a show, we'll print a program, and at the bottom it can say Mangers for Assembly." So I took my daughter, shameless as this is, <laughs> she was twelve, and we did duets, and I did a that's big great. concert. That's great. You know, patriotic and sacred songs, and. Uh, and then later we did a record and actually sent it out to everybody over 50 in the district in a brochure and um, that made me look like, uh, you know, kind of a hip and happening dude. <laughs> Do you have Mike Curb produce it? Mike Curb. You needed Mike Curb to produce it. No, you know, this was done by, uh, by the Democratic uh, Majority Caucus, so yeah. uh, uh, way short of Mike Curb. Yeah. Um, and pretty amateurish, but many people thought it had a big role to play, you'll recall people like Ken Corey and others had popularized the notion of potholders. And so you sent something to a voter. Yeah. And later, you know, that you gave donuts to people who voted and all that kind of stuff till that was outlawed. But God, I forgot all about those potholders now. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, a couple of years, um, in my second term, we would get requests at the district office saying, the potholder is green and doesn't match my decor. Do you have something in blue? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Well, I think that'll do it for us. Uh, Dennis Mangers, thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. It was hey, my Dennis, pleasure. Thanks for coming by. You guys, yeah. Jim, thank you very much. Uh, this is John Howard. We will see you next time around. Thank you.